any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. The third hour on the Tuesday show every week is the Ultimate Issues Hour. You, you might say that a major reason for the crisis in America of truth, of values, is that there are no Ultimate Issues Hours anymore. There were all of my life, because I had a religious education. We mostly talked about Ultimate Issues. The meaning of life, is there a God, what is good and evil, what is purpose, and uh, that is completely lacking in college, in high school, and in elementary school. So this is the Ultimate Issues Hour. On occasion, I have a guest. I've had this man on before. He's a delight. He's a treasure trove of knowledge, and he is a pursuer of wisdom, despite the fact that he is a professor. They're usually mutually exclusive, but not in his case. He's actually a distinguished professor of physics at the University of California, San Diego, Brian Keating. And Professor Keating, welcome to the Ultimate Issues Hour. Great to be back with you, Dennis. Thank you. The reason that I invited you on, aside from I'm selfish and it's just fun to talk to you, putting my selfishness aside is I have been mesmerized by this new telescope and how far into the universe it sees. So let's get a few facts and then I'll ask you some questions. So this is the James W the James Webb telescope. Is that the name? Yeah, it's called the James Webb Space Telescope, known by a winsome acronym, JWST. Yeah, everybody knows that. So how, uh, let me understand just just the facts, as they used to say on Dragnet, just the facts, please. How far into the, uh, I guess, into space is it where it's taking its pictures? Well, it is located a million miles from the Earth, and it has a camera that um, is not quite as powerful as the new Fuji camera you talked about last week. Uh, so actually NASA, <laughs> NASA contacted me to ask you if they can borrow That's correct. the PST, the Dennis Prager space. That's right. So I'm just curious, why is it a million miles into space advantageous over 500,000 miles into space? Well, there aren't that many options when it comes to space. So what you need for a telescope is to be in orbit. When something's in space, it's in orbit around something. So the the Hubble Space Telescope was in orbit around the Earth. It was in what's called low Earth orbit, which means it's only 250 miles above the Earth's surface. And that was done in particular to make sure they could service the telescope. And I don't know if you remember back in 1990, right after it launched, it had some uh, right. it had some stigmatism, and it actually did need to be repaired, or else it would have been, you know, a billion dollar uh, waste of money. Uh, but it was repaired, and it did phenomenal work for now 32 years, uh, and it's been returning this information now. The problem with that is that it's in low Earth orbit, meaning that it goes around the Earth every 90 minutes. Uh, So the space station, anything in low Earth orbit takes only 90 minutes to whip around the Earth. And so in that sense, it's in the either the Earth light or the sunlight 
45 minutes out of every 90 minute period. So it actually has a, a, what we call a duty cycle of how much it's actually taking data that's not as high as desired. Now, the Webb telescope uh, also needed to be farther away from the Earth because the Earth is also a great source of heat. And that source of heat contaminates what the main signals that the Webb Space Telescope is looking for. It's not looking for light necessarily, it's looking for a, a form of light called infrared radiation, which goes by the other name of heat. So it's basically, it has to be as cold as possible. Now, to go to some place that can orbit in a stable place for decades at a time, there are only about five or so different options that are convenient for a space telescope to be located. And one of them happens to be located at what's called the L2 Lagrange point, which is a million miles from the Earth. So it's beyond the moon's orbit by four times the distance to the Earth, to the moon. So this telescope is quite far away. So there is no, to answer your question, there is no really stable orbit at half a million miles. Uh, and it wouldn't be that much more beneficial compared to a million miles. Uh, and so all these reasons ca uh, cause them to put this telescope in, in this particular why, orbit. Why, I, I know nothing about telescopes, but I know something about cameras. It, it's so cold a million miles from Earth. How does the camera operate? Well, that's the idea. So it has to be cold. So when you go into a, a dark movie theater and you come out, uh, your eyes are blinded. Even when it's at night, your eyes get what's called dark adapted. In this case, the telescope wants to see not light, but heat. So it has to get cold adapted. So the more cold it can be, the better. And so for that reason, this telescope is actually cooled to just a few degrees above what's called absolute zero. So it's it's almost 400 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And, and, and that's where the how, do, how does it operate? So it's not so take – wait, wait, wait. Forgive me. Is If it's looking for heat or – is it still a camera or is it a heat uh, assessor? No. It's, it's basically like an infrared camera. So there are these apps right. you can okay. get. For, I know I'm interrupting, but only because I, I – I, I, each point needs to be clear to me. I don't understand how a camera could operate at 350 degrees below zero. Okay. So, and it's fine to interrupt, Dennis. You get extra credit in my class for class participation. There you, you can go. even record. You can Thank even you. record my lectures. I let my students record my lecture. Okay. Anyway, the camera is by design. It has technology called silicon camera technology that works better. These detect these these detector Amazing. pixels Amazing. work better when they're cold, hmm. not worse. Wow. Okay. So the gamble is in sending it to an ideal location to 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 get these photos this far back in the universe's history, which is of course what I want to talk about a lot, but the gamble is we can't repair it. Exactly. And it was recently, so this telescope not only had to go to this distant vantage point, Dennis, it had to assemble itself. It had to put back together what was uh, too large to fit inside the rocket. So the, the telescope is 20 feet in diameter, but the rocket's only about 15 feet in diameter. Wow. So how do you get a 20-foot uh, you know, peg wow. in a 15-foot hole? So they made it assemble itself like origami in space. So it couldn't be repaired or even uh, assembled by astronauts. And we and there is no remote control. No, it's 100% remote control. It's oh, it is, even, even yeah. though it's a million miles away. Yeah, that's not that far. I mean, the sun is 93 million miles away. Yeah, but away. We, don't, we don't control it. 
<laughs> well, no, we, we do send spacecraft there, and, and we, we haven't spent astronauts there yet, but there's a plan to do it at night in a little while. I know. I, I knew the at-night line was coming. I was prepared to say it. <laughs> uh, my dad jokes. You, you yeah, can't trump that's me right. with your granddad jokes. No, no, jokes. no. It's exactly right. So are, are you, uh, are, by you, I mean the the astron the astronomy community are you pleasantly surprised at how well this is working oh yeah this has uh, really exceeded all expectations uh if you're watching on video which you can watch at salem news channel that's how i watch dennis every day uh, i'm showing a video of some of the first images which comes from my youtube channel and my youtube channel uh did a special episode about this very uh discovery and the images that it took and these images are noteworthy, Dennis, for many reasons, one of which is that they are both scientifically interesting, chock full of data, but they also have tremendous visual. Oh, uh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. That's the one, the ridges that, that you just showed. Yes. Uh, it shows you how interested I am in this, that I knew that. Uh, you, you even learned redshift in my first book, Dennis. My second book, you learned right. about blue <laughs> shift, and now you're learning about cosmic clips. Uh, I'm too blessed. Uh, thank you. Yes, um, I'm 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 the non-distinguished professor of, of <laughs> physics. So when I see those photos, aren't they artificially colored? Yeah, but all your all your cameras, your Fuji Pixel one, they're all artificially colored. The way these things work is you have just basically a white light sensor, and then in front of each camera, each pixel is are three different filters, three different colored filters. I happen to have one that's neutral. What's called neutral density in front of me, and uh, one has a little shut in front that filters out so you get R, G, and B, red, green, and blue, and then the computer inside the camera or on your computer processes it and interprets it as if it would be what you could see. But none of these wavelengths are visible to the human eye. They're all much, much longer than we could possibly see. Uh, I with see. Our all right, back with Professor Keating. Hi, everybody. Ultimate Issues Hour. Every Tuesday, third hour, Professor Brian Keating is my guest. We're discussing this incredible insight into the almost origins of the universe because of this telescope in much deep outer space. Professor Brian Keating is Distinguished Professor of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. And I have him on Skype at the Salem News Network, right? Salem News Channel, sorry. Salem News Channel. You can see him and his pictures. I've been absolutely mesmerized by this story about how deep. So we've discussed the telescope. We'll get back to that if we have the time. How far away is the furthest picture? Well, it is actually not any further than, in principle, you could see with your naked eye, meaning that light travels unimpeded until something gets in its way. So you actually don't see things necessarily that are farther away. In other words, if this telescope looked at the sun, it would see the sun just as you see it instantaneously, not, not instantaneously, but it would see it instantaneously, it would be seeing the way the sun looked eight minutes earlier. Uh, just like you would with your telescope. Now, don't do that out there. I'm an astrophysicist telling you don't look at the sun with right. your eye or a telescope. Right. But, um, you know, just disclaimer. However, uh, but it can amplify by virtue of its massive 20-foot diameter mirror. So imagine a camera whose aperture is 20 feet in diameter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can collect fainter light. 
So it is able to see things that are only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, which we astrophysicists, we think of as the origin of the universe, possibly the origin of time, and possibly you know, the, the existence of all reality starting at that one moment. These galaxies are only a few hundred million years younger than our universe itself, which is a great mystery. Yeah, so obviously that's why this is on the Ultimate Issues Hour and not, as it were, the Science Hour. It's it, it's both, obviously, but I, I just wanted to explain why it belongs in the Ultimate Issues question. So I was wondering, it now sees things far more clearly, correct, than any other previous telescope. That's uh, right. That, and, and it can see things clearly that were only – that were – that were in existence just a few hundred million years after the birth of the universe, the, the Big Bang. Did I have that that's correct? Right. Okay. That's right. So is there anything different about what it's seeing than if we saw something 500 light years from the Earth? Oh, yeah. It's much different. And by the way, it can do more than that. It's like asking Galileo – you know, is your telescope good for looking at anything other than craters on the moon? It can lead to, yes, eventually space telescopes. So what this telescope is designed to do is multifold. One is to look back at the origin of the first objects in the universe, the earliest stars, the earliest galaxies. And those are at great distances. Those are billions of years of look back time away from us, closer to the origin of the universe, you know, tens of billions of light years away from us. And then there are things, Dennis, in our cosmic backyard, literally. We actually saw images this week of the planet Jupiter, which is in our solar system. I'm showing animation from my YouTube channel of some of the images that the James Webb Space Telescope saw of what's called an exoplanet. And one of the things an exoplanet could possibly do for science and for the ultimate most ultimate issue, uh, in my mind, is confirm or potentially refute the existence of life elsewhere in the universe. So it can do much more than just look at that, but it would right. be good enough to justify if that's all it did was look at distant Right. Objects. By the way, on the Jupiter issue, did you see any of the photographs of Jupiter? Yes. And what did you learn, you collectively? We learned that Jupiter is the Hebrew planet. They speak Hebrew there. It's Jupiter. Okay, I got to get in a couple of dad jokes, Dennis. You, you must indulge me in some dad jokes. Um, so uh, what I, we, I, what? I'm, I'm reeling, actually. <laughs> uh, so what do we learn? Well, the importance of looking at Jupiter was not to really learn. We've spent we've sent spacecrafts into Jupiter. We've crashed things into it and its right. moons and oh, landed. Oh yeah, that's right. So why so, is this different? because we need to do what's called calibration. We need to know if there is another Jupiter out there or another Earth, could we detect the signs and the signals and distinguish those natural signals from non-human-made or alien-made uh, production? In other words, not the product of agriculture on some exoplanet or some technology or global warming on another planet, but instead we need to calibrate our detectors and our models of how the Webb telescope will illuminate, no pun intended, the discovery potentially of life. So if we do see life, how do we know that we can distinguish it from something nearby that isn't life, that we know no life is on Jupiter? And so we needed to calibrate it. And that's how we do it. It's like taking uh, a dark, uh, dark right, frame. Right. But it's hard for me to believe that uh, the there's been a serious 
inquiry into life on Jupiter. I understand um, serious inquiries at other solar systems. Well, right. So, so actually, Jupiter doesn't have life in itself on the planet itself. But don't forget, Jupiter has about sixty-nine moons that orbit around it. it Those does? are like it has sixty-nine moons. Yeah. It All has right. Incredible. Name fourteen of them. Okay, Io, Europa, Ganymede, Castillo, Titian. I can do this all day, Dennis. I can. No, no, we no. have to memorize. I only, that's why I said fourteen. Uh, Sean is giving you applause. It is. I'm sorry, Sean. It was unearned. He stopped at five. You remind me. Has- you remind me of the the rabbi who had forty grandchildren. This is the truth. And I and I saw them. We were at an event together, and I said, "Can you name them?" And he looked at me. and said, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> <laughs> Six, well, uh, how many moons does Jupiter have? Over 68, 69 that we know about, and it probably has many more that we haven't seen. And many of them are the size of, of our moon or even bigger, meaning that they – and some of them have atmospheres and volcanic activity, uh-huh. tectonic plates. And I want to get to that, Dennis. Uh, I know we're running out of time in this. All segment. right, yeah. We're gonna, we'll be back in a moment. Professor Brian Keating, Distinguished Professor of Physics, UC San Diego. The Dennis Prager Show. That's what we do. Brian Keating is a Distinguished Professor of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. I've asked him to come on again because I wanted to understand what's happening with this remarkable telescope a million miles from Earth. Taking pictures of light that started its journey, how many billion, how, how many light years or how many regular years ago? For the Earth, 13. The, the un, 13. So, and so it's one, it's seeing things really, is, isn't it 14 billion years that they, that scientists yeah. assume the universe is? Okay. Yeah. So again, I want to just return to this question. Are you seeing things that are different from what you would see at half the distance? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, again, the, you know, there's a tendency with your camera, right? You want to see, you have a telephoto lens and then you have a wide field lens, right? You do stuff that's called macro photography and you do micro photography. Um, And all of them have different roles to play in the scientific endeavor. So it is possible to see things that were essentially coming into existence shortly after the origin of the universe. Now, what I study is not this. You know that I study the or the heat left over from the Big Bang itself called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And because of the redshift factor, which you are an unofficial uh, PhD in, the older the light, the more it has been redshifted, the more it has been colored, its wavelength has been stretched out. Just like when you hear an ambulance coming towards you, the pitch goes up and then it goes away. The pitch goes down. We've all heard that. So the same thing happens because the universe is expanding. The universe is dynamic. It is not static. So we can see things that were being coming into existence just as soon as they came into existence. Their light has been traveling since the entirety right. of the universe. Okay. So, but I understand that. But does it look different? It, 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 the galaxies, the objects do not look different. The universe as a whole looked very different 
in other words, the 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 you know kind of the container that contains the objects was very different. It had a very different composition. For one thing, there was no carbon, there was no oxygen, there was no iron uh, to make up things like we are made up of in the first hundred million years of the universe's uh, and the universe's existence. And 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 speaking of iron, I do want to make an offer to your listeners that is exclusive to the first hundred listeners in the U.S. At least, uh, I'm giving away a piece of. 4.5 billion year old material created in the region of our galaxy where our solar system is before our solar system even existed. It's called a meteorite, but it's really the leftover composition of an exploded star. Now, where did that star come from? It must have come from an earlier generation of stars, which themselves blew up eventually. And that star, those stars are the types of stars that this telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, is designed to see. Wait, how, how you didn't tell the, how, how do they get the, the oh, meteorite? Yeah, so if you want to get my meteorite, uh, again, the first hundred people in the U.S., I, I'm a poor public school professor, as you know, Dennis. Uh, I can only send it out in the U.S. Go to briankeating.com slash list, and you join my mailing list, and you put in your address. You can join my mailing list if you don't want to get a meteorite, but the first hundred people that listen to uh, that that respond to that website will get this actual meteorite sent to them. This is four point. It's authenticated, and I will send you data and how to see meteor showers on your own. And there's a big one that I've arranged for just after Dennis's birthday in August called the Perseid meteor shower. I'm going to include some information about that. I'm so very Brian touched. dot com slash list. Okay. So what has really, really hounded me this whole time reading about this is if, if this telescope could see even further, what do you think it would see? In other words, virtually at the Big Bang, what would it see? Right. So that is the domain of what I actually do. So mm -hmm. we build telescopes that are seeing redder light. So redder, again, means the universe has expanded more since it was produced. That light was produced not in the first 100 million years, but in the first 100,000 years after the Big Bang. And it traces the properties of the universe in its first few seconds because it is made up primarily of light left over when hydrogen and helium were formed. The hydrogen and helium make the first stars that James Webb can potentially see. And then those stars blow up after 4 billion years and make these meteorite samples, uh, et cetera. And those happen after – so the whole chain rests on a bedrock that the universe was started much, much earlier by some process. Brian Keating is a professor, distinguished professor of astrophysics at the University of California, San Diego. By the way, he has two PragerU videos, both of Three. which uh, you would find very, very interesting. Three videos. Three Wow. Yeah, book club. I've got two Prager. Oh yeah, right okay. All right. Well, we we think of the videos and book club as separate aspects. That's of how Prager I got tenure. By by doing your PragerU stuff. Yeah. Yes. The day a University of California branch honors people who do PragerU videos will be called the Messianic Era, to give you a very scientific description. Anyway, uh, do look for them. They're terrific, including one of my favorites. Well, they're both the. Um, Follow the science, and what's a greater leap of faith, God or the multiverse? Okay, so I'll tell you where the ultimate issue uh, lies with me in this. So we're now seeing, to with because of this telescope, we're seeing light that was transmitted 
less than a billion years after the beginning of the universe. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Is what we are seeing further argument or proof that there was a Big Bang? Oh, it's it's certainly further uh, substantiation for the Big Bang. Now, I have to tell you that we've only had these images for less than, you know, seven days, right? And and I am not, just to be clear, I'm not involved with the JWST team. I did interview on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, the lead scientist for it, who's a Nobel Prize winner, and we can talk about that. Uh, but this, and he received the Nobel Prize, Dennis, for confirmation that the cosmic microwave background, which is the precursor to everything that the Webb Space Telescope can see, requires that there be uh, pre-existing material to form the first stars, right? How do you get the first? It's not even a chicken or egg thing. We have to have material in the form of hydrogen and helium to make the first stars in order for there be to be a James Webb Space Telescope to, uh, to have any targets to look at, but more than that, for us to exist. Now, I think that's sort of the least interesting thing that James Webb will be looking for. I think it's far more interesting on all the big bangs that you and I have talked about in the past. We talked about the actual big bang, the, the existence of the universe ex nihilo from nothing, the existence of life from non-living matter, from that hydrogen and helium that produces the cosmic signals that I study. Those materials then went in to create life. Now, just simple life is interesting, but it's not an, as all at all as interesting as the formation of conscious life from non-conscious life. Those are the three big bangs. You and I have talked about this a lot. And I think that the, the niche that the Webb Space Telescope will play is between the niche of consciousness and forming conscious biological life like we, we are, are a subset of, and the origin of the universe, which I study in terms of the formation of the first elements on the periodic table. Why will it have anything to do with consciousness or, or life? No, it won't. I'm saying it will, it will oh, with life. Okay, so in order for there to be life, we believe that there have to be a set of different contingent con uh, conditions. There has to be some sort of planetary surface for material to coagulate on. We don't believe that there can be life free-floating in space made of pure hydrogen clouds. Although it wouldn't surprise you to know there are people that believe that is true. So ask what are the conditions for life? And we only know of one example here on Earth. But it's interesting, Dennis, as I speak about in my first PragerU video about the God or the multiverse, 93% of the National Academy of Sciences, the most prestigious entity of all scientists on Earth, uh, do not profess an active belief in God. And the similar number is dwarfing that number. And that's the number of scientists who believe with full faith and conviction almost that there is life in the universe, and there's probably even more life that's more advanced than we are. And those conditions, James Webb can actually weigh in on. And I've said it before that I'm actually a pessimist. I don't believe that the web is going to reveal evidence for life. For one thing, again, these meteorites, your, your, your fans are the most brilliant, second most, I mean, I have to tout my fans on my podcast, Dennis, but, but we've already had, uh, you know, 10 people subscribe to my mailing list from this wonderful uh, uh, appearance that I have. And so more people can subscribe. This meteorite could have been a billion times bigger and spelled death for the inhabitants of Earth billions of years ago. In other words, we believe life existed on Earth about three to four billion years ago. And the Earth is only 4.2 billion years old. So this meteorite, which I will send to people, briankeating.com slash list, that, that meteorite could have been end of life on Earth, and yet we exist. 
and we assume that there are other uh, there are other places in the universe where life will exist. And would they not be bombarded by these same types of meteorites that I'm giving away to your brilliant listeners? That's a question that has to be addressed. And guess what, Dennis? It's just one of about a hundred thousand questions we can ask about the existence of life, which I think is the key mission of the James Webb Space Telescope. How would it determine that there was life elsewhere? What would it see? Okay, so there's obvious things, right? If you saw and you look at here, I'm showing on, on the video for people that are watching coming from my YouTube channel, there's a spectrum. It's a spectrum of an exoplanet. So they did see an exoplanet. It has a beautiful name. I considered it for my second kid's name. It's called WASP-96b. And WASP-96b is a half Jupiter-sized object that orbits around a sun-like star that's a thousand light. So you ask about seeing things close by. This object has an atmosphere. The planet has an atmosphere. And we can see in its atmosphere the presence of liquid water vapor. It's fascinating because we scientists believe that water is a perhaps necessary condition. It may not yeah. be sufficient. Right, exactly, but it may not be sufficient. So, but Dennis, what if we did see? There's a radio broadcast called uh, Penis Drager. I, I shouldn't have said that. I should have thought that better. But there's some no, guy I hear you. Yeah. Uh, on KCBQ or KRLA here, and we are detect. That's one obvious way that Webb could detect it. Now, I, I think nobody thinks that's likely, but that's just one example. It can see with the sensitivity of uh, unmatched sensitivity signals that are the result of technology. And that would be immediate proof of life outside. So, of okay, I have one more, uh, I have a million more, as it, well, <laughs> many more, not a million. Uh, but I, I want to know if this gives more evidence for a Big Bang, will it move any of your colleagues to contemplate a creator? Brian Keating is a distinguished professor. It's not an adjective I made up. It's part of his title, distinguished professor of physics. University of California san diego so i asked you if this telescope peering into the truly earliest part of the universe we've ever seen and giving more affirmation that there was a big bang does that do you think move any of your colleagues to even meditate on the notion that there's a creator I, I'm going to answer your question, Dennis. I'm not trying to be evasive, but I, I've always wanted to ask you kind of the inverse of that question. So if you'll permit me, do you think that these images, I'm showing them now from my website, briankating.com slash list, um, do you think they'll convince religiously affiliated people to take science more seriously? Well, you know how religious I am and how God-centered I try to be, and I take, look, the fact that I'm having the whole hour with you shows I I take it seriously. What I don't take seriously is the notion that science will teach me good and evil or, or meaning. I, I agree. I think, though, that, Dennis, that the, this should be a vehicle to science because I think, you know, it says heavens proclaim the wisdom of God. Right, That's, right. It also says, Dennis, it also says, to, as you know, um, Abraham, and, and you know better than anybody, I learned this from you, Hebrew has a command form. God tells Abraham, go and count the stars. Now, I take that personally in my life hmm. as a commandment to do what I do hmm. to get more appreciation for the works of the Creator mm -hmm. by studying His handiwork, which hmm. to me is what I do. So do I care that somebody else 
doesn't have a belief in God who's an atheist, I, I'm not going to try to convince them. But why, why waste my time with those people, Dennis? Why not start with people like your listeners and say, look, if you want to deepen your amuna, your faith, your tenacity of your belief in the existential uh, existence <laughs> to be repetitive of the ultimate being, then study science. It's the only language that we get that he speaks that we can speak, Dennis. We don't speak whatever language, other language God speaks, other than math and science. So I, I encourage your math, listeners. Math, science, and Bach. Yeah, <laughs> and music, right? Yeah. I mean, you could ask, why did God make so many colors? Why did he make I, infrared? I what, couldn't, what, right. Is that? Why does galaxy Stefan's quintet that I'm showing behind me in the video, what does that have to do with daily life on Earth? No, it's about more than that. BrianKeating.com slash list. He's a special man, my friends. Brian, this was a joy. It went too fast. Yeah. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. It's mutual. The Dennis Prager Show. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 